So today's text is from Romans 5, 6 to 11. That's Romans 5, 6 to 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rob. Hi, everybody. Good morning. My name's Kyle. For those I haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. Happy Easter. I used to have this conversation with my grandfather. Uh, it seemed over and over again. Are people inherently good? Are people inherently good? Me, coming from a Christian perspective, would say, no. Nobody's inherently good. My mind would go to Jesus' own words. Why do you call me righteous? There is no one righteous but God alone. And my grandfather, coming from more of a cultural perspective, saw the good in humanity. He'd say things like, most people would help a person in need. I mean, if you saw a child with a scraped knee, you'd either help him find his mother or get a Band-Aid yourself. He'd also say, I've done more good in my life than bad. I've been thinking about these conversations, thinking about how we were both trying to say something important. For me, a single sin was enough to challenge the, the claim of goodness. For my granddad, a single act of selflessness was enough to challenge the, the claim of goodlessness. I think that's a word, goodlessness. I think my argument was that no one is good enough through and through, consistently enough to say that there's anything special about them, especially if they were face to face with God. Who could stand before God proudly? I think our, in our experience, um, I mean, it might be something like Job. He's a character in the Bible that, that saw God in a whirlwind, who said, where were you at the foundation of the earth? I don't think that mattered to my granddad, who felt like any God worthy of the title should be able to overlook human weakness. The idea of God setting the bar so high as to be unattainable simply made him question the value of religion. I think my grandfather saw the inherent dignity in people and didn't want to diminish their worth. If that's all God wants to talk about at the end of time, is how many stickers I have on my behavior chart. I'm all set, he might say. As many of you know, my grandfather passed away last year. Um, but before he died, he came to trust in Jesus. And I've never, I never got the chance to have that conversation with him again, exploring that question, 
after he surrendered his life. And I wonder how his thinking changed on the matter. So this morning we find ourselves in the book of Romans, um, a letter or a sermon by Paul. It was written to be read to the churches in Rome. And the central theme in Romans is the righteousness of God or the goodness of God, the inherent and unquestionable goodness of God's character and choices. The first 11 chapters of the book are about how people can attain God's righteousness in Christ. And the remaining chapters are about how believers live out the righteousness of God. Our, our passage today, it cuts right to the heart of the gospel message. Paul wastes no ink in saying that we are sinful. We don't have the capacity to stand proudly before God. In fact, because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment. Who can withstand the judgment of God? I can't. Not even Tim, Tim Keller could have. And that's where we were. But something happened to change our relationship with God. Um, and it's not anything we did that was good. Through Jesus, God entered into the human scene and gave up his own life for us. While we were still sinners, our text tells us, Christ died for us. If we should accept his gift, Christ offers us his righteousness. And then something else happened that changes our relationship with God. Christ rose again. Now we don't simply wear Christ's righteousness like a garment. No, no, no. That's too passive. Christ is literally alive and well. Christ actively intercedes for people that trust in him. He reigns in the hearts of those who call on his name through the Spirit. The story here is a movement from a place of disadvantage with God, where we're worthy of his judgment, well beyond the place of neutrality, and to a place of advantage with God, a place where we share in the life of Christ. The gospel teaches us that we need not only experience grace, forgiveness, when we didn't deserve it. We also are invited to experience the benefits of favor with God. Because being a son or daughter of the king of the universe has its advantages. Am I right? Maybe you've heard this message before. This morning, I'm going to walk through our passage, getting back down to the, the staples, the basics those foundational gospel truths. There's four of them in this passage. The first one is, is because of sin, we stand powerless. The second is that because of love, Christ stands for us. The third is that because of his death, we are reconciled with God. And fourth, because of his life, we have a reason to boast. So firstly, this passage teaches us the gospel truth that we are powerless. Because of sin, we stand powerless. Powerless to love God, powerless to choose God, powerless to reflect God's own goodness. In verse 6 of our passage, we read this. You see, at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Did you catch that line? When we were still powerless. We all know what it's like to lose electricity. You're sitting there watching a movie, things get suspenseful, and then all of a sudden, power's out. If you don't have a generator, you're 
lighting candles just to see. You don't get to see the end of the movie until the power's back on. No power means no capacity, no ability, no movie. This is the claim that's being made about us in this passage. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 9, so before our passage, that everyone has fallen under the power of sin. The reason we're powerless is because the sin, the power of sin is too great to withstand. We're not living under the power of God. And that's why in our verse, we're called ungodly. Sin changes you. If your heart is like soil, well, sin is a seedbed. And a bed of sin is something we don't have the capacity to manage. We don't have it, the capacity to resolve it. The power's out. There's no electricity. Because of sin, we're powerless. Powerless to love God. Powerless to choose God. Powerless to reflect God's own goodness. The second gospel truth in this passage teaches us that God acted in our behalf because he loves us. Because of love, Christ stands for us. And you know, actually, at, at several points in this passage, I don't know if you noticed, but Paul talks about God's wrath and, and describes us as being enemies of God. Now, I'm not sure about you, but my first instinct when I read about God drawing lines in the sand is, is to get a little defensive. Um, my bias is to read God's wrath like an emotional response and then get mad at God for being mad at us. The part of me that wants to champion the cause of inherent human dignity, it wonders why God is defining us as his enemies. But quickly I remember the facts. Jesus, who is God, was literally crucified when he came to Jerusalem in peace, riding on a donkey. It's simply a fact that because of sin, we've made ourselves enemies of God. There's great enmity, there's a great separation um, caused between the power of sin and the reality of God who is Lord. It, it isn't God who, who's gone to war with us, but it's us who goes to war with God. You know, you can't have an inconsequential relationship with God. We're not on equal standing with our Creator. And however you see it, God's wrath, it's not something static in this passage. It's not like an unmoving wall. Something happened to change our identities as enemies of God and to change God's wrath towards us. And it's not anything we did. Our passage puts it this way in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a purpose in it. Uh, our passage says that Christ died for us. Jesus died for you and me because God loves us. God's the one who enters into that place of estrangement, the place of war between us and God. And it's because of love. And love is the same reason that God has wrath against sin. Because sin leads to death. It isn't love to be neutral about things that bring harm. It's because of love that Christ stands for us. God acted on our behalf because he loves us. The third gospel truth in this passage teaches us that we've been reconciled in Christ's death. 
Because of our death, we are reconciled with God. So Ernest Hemingway, he, he starts a short story called The Capital of the World this way. He says, Madrid is full of boys named Paco, which is the diminutive of the name Francisco. There is a Madrid joke about a father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in one of the personal columns, which said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And the squadron had to be called out to disperse the 800 young men who answered the advertisement. <laughs> Maybe this speaks directly to the difficulty of fathers and sons, but I, th I think it also speaks to our longing for forgiveness. The Bible talks about God as our father. In one story, uh, a son called the prodigal son left home, squandered his, his inheritance, the money he'd been left, and lost everything. When he returned home, he was ashamed and just ready to work for his father just so he could have stable housing. The picture we have of God and the image that, that, that of what God does for us in this life, the salvation that we're offered, is the picture of a father. A loving father who runs out to meet his son on the road and says, come home. Don't be silly. Of course you're still my son. I love you. I mean, that's what it's like to meet Jesus on the road, to experience his saving and merciful love. There's a thought experiment in this passage in verse 10. So Paul asks this. He says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through his son, so if that, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? I mean, isn't that a good thought experiment? If in Jesus' dying we're reconciled, I mean, what about his living? Is the good news of the gospel simply that we've been forgiven? And if we've been forgiven from our sins, I mean, what have we been forgiven to? What's on the other side of that? The beauty of the gospel is that our lives have been united with Christ. His fate is our fate. Beginning now, we can participate in the very life of God. When we stand with Christ, it's like a song that we sing with the Father and the Holy Spirit along with the Son. We not only experience the peace of God, but we also experience the peace that God experiences. I can't imagine the fullness of life in God, but it's certainly a life without striving. I know one thing, it isn't a life of accruing stickers on God's behavior chart. Because of Christ's death, we're reconciled with God. And because of his life, we have a reason to boast. That's what verse 11 says. Not only is this so, but we also boast in, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is the fourth gospel truth that this pass passage teaches us. Um, because we share in the incredible gift of Jesus' life, we have a reason to shout it from the rooftops. My Bible, um, the NIV, when I was preparing this, it gave the wider passage the subheading, peace and hope. Um, abiding with Christ, resting in his finished work, means you don't have to strive anymore. It's an inv invitation to have peace with God. Paul says it this way in verse 2. He says, we've gained access to faith into the grace we now stand. I mean, standing in a state of grace. I think standing in a state of grace is one of the reasons Christians do some radical things in the world. 
um, the late Baptist minister and activist, Will Campbell, he used to say that it's not just God's intention to accept the ungodly, but to unmake the ungodly. Living in the South as a white man prior to and during the civil rights era, he maintained relationships with black victims of the KKK and at the same time with KKK murderers. He didn't do this because he had a tolerant ideology. He wasn't some radical, inclusive person. That is the resurrection of the, of the dead working. He defined his life by calling into existence the things that do not exist, giving life to the dead by standing in the dangerous space between these two groups. At the 1998, 1998 trial of KKK Grand Imperial Wizard Sam Bowers, reporters noted how Campbell went back and forth in the courtroom between Bowers and the, the family of the man Bowers killed, the civil rights activist Vernon Damar. And when asked by re reporters why, how he could do this, um, he just snapped back at them and said, because I'm a darn Christian. Resurrection living looks pretty radical to local news. Paul continues in our passage telling us, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope is, is that the power that raised Jesus from the dead will unmake the ungodly, in those, the words of that pastor, ignite the people of God to stand in the dangerous spaces of our world as we wait for Jesus to return and renew all things under the power of his domain. When Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul calls this a down payment. I mean, that means that Jesus' resurrection was the guarantee, the down payment that God is gonna fulfill his promises to us. Jesus is the first of the harvest. Because Jesus is alive, the promises of God are yes in Christ. Because Jesus is alive, the promises of God are secure. And because Jesus is alive, we have a reason to be confident and we have a reason to boast. I mean, we're starting a sermon series next week on evangelism, and we can call this style of evangelism uh, boastful ev evangelism or gloating. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I stand on the promises of God. I have to. The, the, that he'll work out for the good of, of all his children, work all things to the good. I find comfort in the promise that, that he will be with me, that his presence will be with me in trials. That he, I, I take comfort in the promise that I will have every spiritual blessing in Christ. I mean, these are, these are the promises, that the, the work that he started, that he's going to finish that work, that he will give already but not yet eternal life to anybody who trusts in him that he's gonna return and make all things new. Because we share life in Christ, we have reasons to boast. So God gives us those four simple but foundational gospel truths in our passage today. Because of sin, we're powerless. But because of love, Christ stands for us. Because of his death, we're reconciled with God. And because of his life, we have reason to boast. I mean, the call is to believe it, and the call is to live it. 
The good news is that in Christ, we've moved from this place of disadvantage with God, where we're worthy of his judgment, beyond a place of neutrality, and to a place of advantage with God, where we're actually called to share in the life of Christ, in the life of God. In our worship, in praying, in singing, in our lamenting, we have a great reason to shout from the mountains that God has done it. God has put in their place the powers and principalities of this world that sought to make Jesus a thing of the past. But he's alive. Jesus is alive. And if you have this confidence, let's share it. Let's share it. Let's boast in this. And if you don't have this confidence, hear Christ's invitation to you today to trust him for this reconciliation and this fullness of life. I know I'm feeling that I want to share it. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you call us to something full and something good. I thank you that because you are alive, we can trust the promises of Scripture. We can put our uh, bottom dollar on the fact that you are a God that vindicates. You are a God who will make all things new. We can trust that you are making us new. Lord, give us the boldness to celebrate this, not just in church, but throughout our lives. I thank you for your invitation to trust you more fully. In Jesus' name, amen.